Welcome to the Young Businessmen of Tulsa podcast. I'm your host, Evan Uitake, and I'm so excited that you've tuned in. Our mission is focused on connecting, developing, and inspiring young business leaders to find and pursue their purpose. This podcast is sponsored by Trost Marketing. Promoting your business through marketing is essential for growth. Without marketing, you lack the ability to create a conversation with your potential customers. At Trost Marketing, we provide marketing solutions that fuel growth. We are your source for all of your printing needs, as well as branded apparel and promotional items. If your business wants to stand out to potential customers, contact the marketing experts at Trost Marketing. Visit us at trostmarketing.com or call us at 866-492-7820. Young business leaders, welcome to the YBT Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Uitake, and I want to welcome you to podcast number 102. This... it's a little uh, abnormal for me to be talking in the triple digits, so uh, I'm excited that you guys are here, excited that you guys are tuning in. I'm really excited uh, to bring today's guest with you, Paula Marshall. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, it's because she was one of our recent speakers at our July luncheon, I believe. Uh, she came in and talked a little bit about uh, her family of companies, Bama Pie, and uh, she's been the executive uh, the CEO for since 1984. She is in charge of Bama Pie, Bama Foods, Bama Frozen Dough, Beijing Bama, Bama Europa. Yes. Is that right? uh-huh. Europa. <clears throat> Under her leadership, Bama has expanded to provide a wide variety of frozen desserts and baked goods to fast food chains and casual and family dining restaurants. Paula, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot more than just that little bio. So say hello to the audience, and if you can, tell them a little bit more. Uh, tell them a little bit more about yourself. Hey, everybody. Well, 102 podcasts is pretty cool. I listen Thank to you. a lot of podcasts, and there's not very many people that have 100 podcasts out there. So congratulations to you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> my name's Paula. Um, I was born and raised in Tulsa. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents um, were already in business. Uh, we all grew up in a, in a household where we didn't do much on the weekends except come and take care of the pies and make sure that things got done. And as a family, we spent a lot of time talking about the company and the business. It was very, very commonplace at our breakfast table for my mom and dad to be discussing uh, buying a new piece of equipment or working with a new customer. And um, while we were growing up in the 70s, uh, or late 60s, early 70s, we were, you know, starting to do a lot of business with McDonald's Corporation. Uh, McDonald's executives were around our home. They came for dinner. I mean, there was a lot of interaction, interactions with McDonald's and intermingling with mm-hmm. the executives and senior. So I grew up thinking that that was normal part of business. I mean, doesn't everybody yeah. sit around their family table with executives from a Fortune 100 company? And only it wasn't at the time. At the time uh, that they started working with, with my father um, and our business, there was only about 500 restaurants. Mm. So it was a, a growing company, but it wasn't like on the map like it is today. They didn't have anything internationally. Um, and so we got to be a part of this company and the way they treated their suppliers made a huge impact on me and my my family because it was always handshakes and partnerships and we're going to do this together and we went along with them and they treated us as equals and as equal partners mm-hmm. so um, in the late 60s um, early 70s I remember my father saying uh, to my mom you know, Ray and the McDonald's guys, um, they're trying to grow and they need money. And if, they, if they're going to keep growing, uh, they need to borrow some money from some of the suppliers. And Ray Kroc has asked me, yeah. you know, would I help fund some of the, some of the things? And um, I think we should do this. So my mom and dad went to the bank and borrowed money and gave it to Ray Kroc. And I remember sitting through all those conversations. Um, obviously, I went on to high school. I, I graduated from college. I've got a couple of degrees from, from school, from Oklahoma City University. Um, and my plan was never to come back and run the business. My two older brothers were slated. Mm-hmm. And when um, in the early 90s, uh, late 80s, my father had a heart attack. And then a month later, my older brother uh, had a heart attack. Wow. At the, he was only 45 years old. Oh, my. 
So this this was a big shock to our family. Both of the the heirs apparent uh, were in the, you know out of commission in the hospital. My other brother and I are only uh, ten months apart, so um, he was asked to come back from college. Um, I was not asked to give up anything. Mm -hmm. I was just doing my thing, um, and it became a problem. My my brother was having a problem dealing with the business and with all that was going on and he was more of an emotional had more of an emotional problem mm -hmm. and so when um, they asked my mom you know like well who's who's in charge down there like who's running the place and she said well um, my son's here but I'm gonna bring my daughter in and they're like well who is this well at that time I was the only one that had had a college degree yeah. And my mom like threw this out, like thinking, well, that would be something that would be cool for them to hear. Well, she's got her college degree, and I was in grad school. And they were like, well, okay, we don't even know her. We think maybe we should come down there and talk to you guys about it. Maybe it's time to unload the business. Yeah. So one of my first tasks coming back here to, to you know try to help my mom figure out what was going on was McDonald's coming in and saying, we think you guys should sell the company. And so, I mean, like right off the bat, I'm like, whoa. And so we we brokered, we went in to see dad and he said, hell no, yeah. no way. Uh -huh. And so I said, well, my dad doesn't want to do that. So I said, would you give me a chance? And at that time, there was only one woman supplier. Yeah. That was it. There was, they had one other woman that was supplying them and she made, she was in the coffee business. Very small company. And they said, well, we're kind of interested in this whole diversity thing, so yeah, maybe we'll give you a chance. So, you know, we started we started rolling from that point, and um, I've never looked back. Wow. I mean, I went back and finished my my uh, some other postgraduate degrees, and and did that part time, and then we started right away building plants and going to China and you know supplying Japan and going all over the world with them and. And <clears throat> something that my dad had struggled with, but I felt it was very important for us to continue to follow them. Mm -hmm. And so we went in and made investments and built plants and hired people and management teams, just like all the other suppliers did. Mm -hmm. And so um, a lot of my career was just learning to work in that relationship. And just when someone asked you to do something, you said, okay. I mean, you just didn't look back, you know. Yeah. You realize, this is McDonald's, you know, like, we got to do this. And we were the only and still control more than 75% of the global pie supply. Holy cow. Today. Yeah. On a handshake. Well, I definitely want to talk about that, but <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel like I need to dig a little deeper into this because I, I don't think I heard that, that part of the story where you were basically third in line yes. for the company and probably not even planning on it in the very I wasn't beginning. even in line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was no line. There was my two brothers oh, and I was off somewhere. <laughs> but well, my mom my mom was the one that when my dad was in the hospital said, you know, it was the, the there had just been an equal rights thing passed mm -hmm. in the 80s and um, my mom was like, you know, we can do this, girl. Mm -hmm. Like, my mom had always also been the backseat. She'd never really interacted too much. She was making dinner and bringing it in, you know, mm -hmm. and all the men were in the dining room talking, and I was helping her. And so we were never considered mm -hmm. part of anything. We were just kind of there. Yeah. So we weren't integrated into any, you know, other than my dad would come back to us, or my mom mostly, and they would talk about money and how to finance these things and how to make it happen, but it wasn't like you're going to be running anything or doing anything, yeah. you know, kind of thing. So for me, it was like when my dad and my brother were both out at exactly the same time and McDonald's was like talking to my mom directly yeah. for the first time. And she, she wasn't realized, used to that at all, was she? No, she was very uncomfortable and yeah. very, very afraid. Uh -huh. She was confident in her her skills to put together things that my dad wanted to do but she wasn't the the explorer she wasn't the front person you know she was uncomfortable in that role mm -hmm. um, she was more comfortable in the back the back of the bus right yeah making sure that the buses ran on time you know yeah. there's people like that uh -huh. 
And then there's people that are building the buses and telling people where the bus routes are going to be and all that. Well, that was my dad. But my dad also had limitations as far as McDonald's was concerned. So when they first started working with me, they started asking me a lot of things about going international and building plants in other countries because my dad had been reluctant. Yeah. And <clears throat> he had been setting up operations for other people to run and pay him a royalty back. Oh, okay. And eventually I saw the flaw that that was going to create for us, that if you're not owning and you don't have the assets there, at some point you can just get cut out. Well, yeah, then know, they should take it over needed. and they're like, we don't need you anymore. You were not needed. Exactly. And I saw that kind of happening in Japan, and I saw it kind of happening other places. And so I went to, to them and said, yes, we want to we wanna be a part of this. Yeah. So... I think some moves that I made like that early on, not knowing that that was going to endear me to them, but I should have maybe now that I look back, I've, you realize if someone's becoming a stumbling block and someone comes in and is like frees up that stumbling block mm -hmm. for the company, it helps them. Yeah. And so that garners loyalty for them to say, maybe she's, maybe this could work. Yeah. So they started looking around <clears throat> at their other diversity suppliers at that time because of the equal rights movement and other things that were happening. And so while it's, I, it's, we say that I took over in 84, I really didn't take over until probably 1990 because um, we created a general partnership and I was the general partner. Uh -huh. But I still had lots of family in and lots of people telling me what to do and that type of thing. So it wasn't really until 1990 my dad said, okay, you're going to be it. Yeah. Like, you're going to run this thing. You're going to take it, and you're the one that, that McDonald's is going to deal with. And Because as part of becoming a diversity supplier, they had to, my mom and dad, we had to have women in control of the stock mm -hmm. and in control of the decision-making. Oh. So my dad had to actually sell me stock, which then gave my mom and I a 51% yeah. share. And he did it willingly because he knew he was sick and he knew he wasn't probably mm. ever going to be able to do what they wanted. Yeah. But that was hard for him, you know. I mean, that was really hard for him to do that. So for me, it's been a journey to kind of to kind of help McDonald's see that I did have capability and to allow me to, you know, work with them the same as my father had and not see me as a woman. Yeah. Well, I think it's awesome uh, that they they were open to that and willing to uh, kind of take that chance. But I think, uh, like from a lesson standpoint, what we can learn from that is that you know your your dad's view of the business was a, a certain view, and you were coming in from an outside and, and was able to kind of create uh, a different um, perspective mm -hmm. of the entire situation. And it sounds like, I mean, obviously hindsight is, is a little bit more clear, mm -hmm. but uh, it sounds like maybe if he hadn't made the moves that you suggested and, and kind of the direction that you went, that maybe Bama wouldn't be the company that it is today because those outside partners would have been the international stuff, and who knows, maybe that could have taken over mm -hmm. here domestically. I mean, that that's a huge thing, and I think sometimes we get caught up in like being the guy, being the girl, being the person that's... Like these are the decisions, and I and I know all the answers, and I've I've already done this, and I've run the calculations, and this is how it needs to be. And I mm -hmm. think it's really important to consider those, uh, you know, have that diversified team that's going to help you because they're going to bring up some things that you can't see, you just physically cannot see them, and and when those things come up, and you're able to look back and you're like, I'm so glad I had that team around me yes. that was able to speak up and 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 make those suggestions. Right, right. It's, you know, I think the other lesson for me was. Um, you know, I'd been around the company since I was a kid. And yeah. so don't second guess yourself. You know, like, yes, my dad was the rainmaker. Yes, my brother was the second, you know, was the commandeer of the mm -hmm. ship that was known and everyone knew that. But, you know, sometimes things happen and you got to keep yourself in, in position by just keep your nose to the grindstone and do the work and become the best you can be mm -hmm. at that thing. Because sometimes when we try to like be a jack of all trades and do too many things, mm -hmm. then we lose track of what our pure focus, what we could be really, really good at. So when you don't lose track of your focus, you you can you can become the expert in a field and and when the time is right, 
you can go into an opportunity because you are the expert. So people mm -hmm. are going to call you. They're going to seek you out. You never know when that day is going to come, mm -hmm. right? Like I could have never projected that I would be sitting here talking to you today. Yeah. Like when I was in college, I never projected any. I was going and getting all these degrees because I didn't even think I'd have a shot at working here. <laughs> like literally, that wow. that's how separated I was from what went on here. My dad was actually not a fan of women running things. Mm. He was old school. He felt like business is a harsh. There's a it's a harsh world. It's it's full of fighting and killing and competition and yeah that's kind of, I hate to say this but it's a male's point of view kind of like it's the caveman let me go out and slay something that was my dad's philosophy I have not experienced that in my business career mm -hmm. I have not seen yes do we get competition and yes do we want to beat them absolutely is that hard to do no mm -hmm. I mean. It's not hard to do because we understand our competition. We understand these very large companies that we compete against. We understand our value proposition really, really well and what we do well and what we don't do well, and we stay away from what we don't do well. And so I'm able to take business away from the giants, yeah. you know, like General Mills and Kraft and Pillsbury and all these different companies. Um, that we've taken business from over the years simply because we stayed true to our purpose mm -hmm. and I didn't shy away from um, taking on those challenges. Yeah, and it, so that's a big statement right there because mm -hmm. I think when you're a smaller company, it's easy to stay true to it, but when you're a big company <clears throat> and you're talking about lots of jobs, People lots chase of revenue, the dollars. Yeah, and you're like, I feel like we have, like we don't have a choice you do have the choice. It's it's just whether or not you're willing to compromise on those values right. that you have. Because if you don't have those already in place, um, it, you're not making a decision at that point. You're just following the dollar. And in my opinion, and, and what I've seen just in my years of business, is that doing what you say you're going to do, providing a quality product, taking care of your customers, and taking care of your vendors uh, is not normal business right and so when you do that that is a competitive advantage to the extent where like people seek you out and want to do business with you because you treat them well because the market itself treats them like yes like crap. yes that's very true I mean you you can there's the world is littered mm -hmm. um, with with you know poor poor practices poor quality and somehow these people are still getting along you yeah. know they still get along because they they're maybe the only game in town um, but when that's the case eventually and you're not good at what you do eventually you're gonna fall yeah eventually the cons customers are gonna figure out this is a sham and they're gonna immediately go somewhere else that's why I think it's so tough right now for these big huge companies because mm -hmm. they've been the only game in town now you've got the internet. Now people can go out and buy things directly for themselves. They can cut through a lot of the, you know, the, the bad service and mm. the poor quality and the returns. You bypass and the service standing, altogether. <laughs> standing in line for hours to return something. And yeah. it's like, just give me a different way of doing it, right? right? And that's what the internet has brought to business, I think. Yeah. So now I think it's even harder um, for people to, um, you know, escape from being a being bad being a bad player because now you can go on and review the company yeah. and write stuff on there and put things on their Facebook page and cause them all kinds of gnarly yeah. you know <laughs> customer satisfaction issues yeah. and people go on and read that stuff uh -huh. you know when they're getting ready to buy something so for us the other part of what we do is 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 very very heavy innovation yeah. we do you know that's one of the things my dad taught me so I've learned things, people tell me a lot of times, you know, you're kind of a mixture between your mom and your dad. Um, you know, my mom was a southern lady. She was very genteel. She always kept her face out of the sun. She wore a lot of hats. She's beautiful and mm -hmm. kind and sweet. But she'd stomp on you if she needed to, mm -hmm. you know. My dad was more abrasive and gruff. Mm -hmm. And 
if he loved you, he loved you, you know? And if he didn't, he didn't want to have any part of mm-hmm. dealing with you because you were just taking up his time. So, but one of the things he and I would do a lot is we would go to the grocery stores around on Saturday. Um, my mom would watch my kids and we would go um, drive around and go just pick up products and bring them back to the house and look at them and talk about them. And, and she'd always cringe when we'd come back because she's going, we're not making that. We're not going to put a line in to make that. You know, just because you saw one honey bun at a at a store, we're not doing that. So we didn't have a formal way of innovating. We didn't have consumer research yeah. at that time. We didn't have uh, people around us that studied what consumers buy, and we didn't know what markets consisted of, and we didn't know a lot about. You know, when my dad saw something, he immediately wanted to start making it. Yeah. And that means to my mom, that means spending money on equipment. So one of the things she was always very good at guiding him was stick with McDonald's. Mm -hmm. You know, stick with McDonald's. And one of the things I did was, you know, of course, the classic case, you come in and you look at our company and you're like, 90% McDonald's, this is crazy. Like, I got to fix this, right? Uh, And so one one of my early jobs was to try to figure out another customer. And so I would do do some things and work with McDonald's, but that was primarily m- what my dad did. Wow. And so I was charged with, you know, find us another another customer. And so I was fortunate to be in the right spot at the right time when one of our suppliers came in and was telling me that Pizza Hut was going to uh, convert from fresh dough to f- uh, frozen dough. Uh-huh. And they sold them all the flour, and they were selling us flour, and they were like, why don't, you know, you're a diverse company, you're a woman-owned business, why don't you, why don't we go in and see these people? And I'm like, sure. And, you know, within six weeks, we had a line put together. It wasn't a great high-speed line, but it was a line because we did all of our homework. I brought the people in that knew how to make it. We started producing their breadsticks in 1993. And... By 1995, we built a plant with two dough lines in it. And that was a amazing feat, at least me looking back now, for me to organize that, coordinate that. That was like my baby. Yeah. My baby was the frozen dough. And uh, Yum is still my strategic account. Like, I still, like, am to Yum, like my dad was to McDonald's. I'm yeah. still in McDonald's every, every day, every <laughs> week. But Yum is... Like they're my they're my guys, yeah. And so we today have relationships with KFC and Taco Bell mm-hmm. because we got in with the Yum system. But you know that's another one of those things where if I hadn't been willing to go out and look and and build another relationship with another company, it would have never happened. Yeah. You know, what I mean, it would be easy to s- turn that down and say, no, we're all we do is McDonald's around here. Yeah, but me thinking in the back of my mind that it would probably be a good idea to have at least one other customer. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and it's proven to be a good strategy for us yeah. because we have great relationships with McDonald's and great relationships with Yum. Yeah. Because the, our, our products aren't anywhere competing with each other. Mm-hmm. They don't really compete with each other. I mean, they do at lunch and, and dinner and things. But... You know, pizza and desserts are really different. Mm -hmm. And we focus at McDonald's on breakfast. We do a lot of breakfast products for them. Mm -hmm. And with the other chains, we're more working on the lunch, dinner, day parts. So no one's ever seen that as a problem. Yeah. Like no one's ever, you know, said, oh, that's a problem that you're doing business with them. It's like never come up. It's never been talked about. And we just keep going, you know. Well, they want to do business with companies that are healthy. So you have a great foundation with McDonald's. Yes. So going there, I think that added a lot of the, like, okay, Bama can take care yes. of us because we uh-huh. know that they can if they can handle that, yeah. they can handle pretty much anything. The credibility factor. Absolutely. Yes. And then for you as a leader, I mean, getting a win like that just gives you that much more confidence in what you're doing. And you're like, okay, you know, Ray and McDonald's was my dad's thing. This is my thing. Yeah. And like, and I think if <clears throat> if I'm reading into it too deeply, let me know. But that that gives you, uh, as as a leader, and the confidence and everything that you're doing, just like, all right, you know, this this is my part mm-hmm. of this, and I'm building onto it. And this is kind of the 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 impression that I'm leaving on this company, 
and so we can start taking it to mm -hmm. that next level here. And now, hey, we've proven that we can do this. Now let's talk to Taco Bell. Let's yes. talk to all these other other companies, and you start growing these vertical markets. Well, you can imagine me and the family, and my mom, and my dad was getting out of the hospital at that point. My brother was was kind of in general coming back to work a little bit and they're all trying to figure out well what's this Pizza Hut deal yeah. you know because they've approached us and they want us to put in a, a, a plant for yeah. them you know because they're going to roll this stuff out and they need manufacturing capability and plants aren't cheap and it's a 30 million dollar oh, wow. it's 30 million and my dad was like if you're good I'm good and we had a, a contract Yum does con they only do contracts yeah. so it, we had a contract um, my brothers, neither one of them were fans of the returns of the frozen dough, but my my thing was, look, in food service, you're not going to get a real estate return. You're not going to get a 12% return. Mm -hmm. And you're you're not going to have to be out like in grocery stores fighting and fighting and fighting for the business. So an 8% return or 7% return over, you know, the fact that we pay back all the money and that we're going to have a plant, we're going to have jobs, and we're going to pr produce a profit. Mm -hmm is a pretty good it's a pretty good deal you know like I kept fighting for it and at the end of it it was really strange because my my family was very divided and it yeah. was the first time we've ever really been truly divided because at the time what was going on we were building a, a, a second plant in China uh -huh. so not a small one but a bigger one then we were building a the plant out in uh, North Tulsa, the biscuit plant. Yep. So that's a forty-five million dollars. The plant in China was ten, and now I want to lay this. And this is this thirty. And this is a family that's never had debt. And my my parents, my 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 dad was like, I want out. <laughs> I want some money, yeah. and I will become this silent partner. I'll just be over here, and I don't want any risk. I don't want to be anywhere near yeah. if this thing collapses. You know, like he looked at me and said, you do know. like, And I said, Dad, each one of these things is going to pay for itself. Yeah. And I said, I know it's a lot to dump on at one time, but, like, we may never have this opportunity again. Mm -hmm. I mean, Pizza Hut will build some factories with some companies. We could be it, and we could be their primary dough supplier, or we can let it go. I mean, it, it's, you know, you're, this is a crucial point. And him and my mom were both like, let's do it. Yeah. But he's like, but get me some cash off. <laughs> I want, I want, I want to know I can still go out and Need play golf every day. Here. And yeah, yeah, and I'm not going to lose everything. And you know what? It was a very stressful time during our, for our whole family. My brothers were then disgruntled and they wanted to go out. And so I, I said to them, in about, can you guys give me three to five? Yeah. Because if we can just get these things done, I promise you we'll come back and we'll, we'll I'll, I'll, I'll buy everybody out if that's what you guys want. Yeah. One of my brothers was good with it, one of them wasn't so good. So we started a, you know, a distribution pay down kind of thing for him for a couple of years mm -hmm. before we could come back. But the good news is, you know, we built the biscuit plant, we got it rolling, we've, we've never looked back. It's been a great business for us. That the China operation was great for a number of years, and we just were able to sell out of that um, down to 25% because that's a whole nother story. But mm. um, and the and the the pizza plant has been you know generating pizza dough for you know since 1996. Wow. And so and in in 99, I got one of my brothers bought out, and so you can you know like it's just been a lot of upward investment, a lot of money going out, but to set the company up for, you know, more future success. Yeah. And and as I've learned in business and my dad, you know, being more conservative and my mom being really conservative, but you know, it takes debt sometimes to grow. Yeah. And you just you need calculated debt. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to calculate what we do is we have a saying around here and my CFO at the time who's retired now, but my CFO at the time would say to me, Paula, we can do anything you want to do. We just don't want to bet the entire company on any one of these deals. Yeah. So we set up everything as an individual separate LLC that would not tumble, that the, the dice wouldn't fall over. Yeah. We worked with bankers who understood who understood McDonald's and Pizza Hut. We, 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 those relationships with those kind of companies and those kind of banks is invaluable because then I don't have to like compromise my values to go public mm -hmm. or to take in private investment money or anything like that.
Because anytime you do that, anytime you lose control of your operation to private outside investors or private equity or you sell a piece of it even to a private investor, mm -hmm. your destiny is now not your own. Yeah. You don't. You may be the one in there working, and you may realize, oh my God, this person doesn't want. We're not on the same sheet of paper. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you heard that, yeah. right? Sometimes so, not even the same. We're not even the same book. We're not in the same book. Yeah. We're not on the same page, or the book, or the encyclopedia. We're outside of all of that, and then you spend all your waking hours trying to figure out how to get rid of this person. Yeah, and then all, then instead of growing <coughs> and have, helping take the company to the next level. It's the turmoil to, starts. Yeah, it's trying to take care and of this. I meet up with so many entrepreneurs that have that, and mm -hmm. I've been very, very fortunate, again, because of my customer base, because of working with vendors and banks who understand my customer base. I've never had to sell one share wow. of stock outside to anybody. Once I got wow. my brothers out, once I made the deal with my parents to, to acquire more of the company, once that was all done, I'm like, uh-uh, yeah. this stuff isn't going anywhere. It's staying in the family. And we control our destiny now. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times McDonald's has come back to me and Yum and saying, this is the greatest thing ever, is to be able to talk, A, to the owner, or yeah. B, to the management team of the owner, and to get a decision within an hour or within two hours or with, by the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, we've just completed a bunch of conversations, new new conversations on some new stuff with with McDonald's that what they want and we're able to get back to them in like two hours yeah. and it's like no one can do that that they're dealing with none of the other people that I compete with in the breakfast category uh -huh. can do that they're all public companies yeah, they all have individual business units and, and the yeah. business unit leader is leading the charge and it takes a month to get an answer yeah. And then they may come back and say, no, we can't do it. And so there's always a lot of, you know, jockeying with mm -hmm. these big companies, even with private equity. And in my space right now, in bakery in the, in the U.S. is very, very, very full of private equity coming in, buying, selling, buying, selling. And they don't I mean, care at that point. They care not. Yeah. So that affects McDonald's. That affects Yum. Yeah. You know, I mean, they get... Whole, they they go down a path, and they're on a path, and all of a sudden a supplier comes in, and they're going to interrupt supply, or they're going to they need a pricing adjustment. Mm -hmm. That screws up their entire model. Yeah, and they can't have that kind of stuff going on. The margins so. are thin for them too. I mean, exactly, it's, it's well, they're really you know under the gun right now yeah. because of all the value going on in the food market. Every food company you look at, they're all offering you know free this or a value meal for that or two for four or yeah. two for five or you know whatever they're offering everything has a value component to it yeah. so consumers are very not interested <clears throat> in paying full price for anything and they're feeling it too mm -hmm. so you know to lose control for an entrepreneur I understand you know people max out their credit cards they take second and third mortgages on their homes because they they have a burning passion yeah. to do something um, getting an SBA, SBA loan or getting hooked up with a bank that believes in small business. There's banks that do that. Yeah. And and if if it was the last thing I do, I would I would sell a share of my company for money to somebody that I didn't know. Yeah. You know if they were going to make it or not. If they were going to be yeah. you know be with me. Well, my next question was, where do I buy shares? So I'll just go ahead and cross that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, take that off the list. All right, all right. <laughs> well, man, there's just so much here, and I'm, I'm really uh, honored that you're kind of uh, just, just talking about all these different things. One thing we haven't talked about yet, and I want to make sure we allocate enough time for, <clears throat> is um, I, I came across a video of you speaking about, um, it was the Deming Institute, mm -hmm. and talk, uh, talking about that method. And uh, you got about three-fourths of the way into your conversation with, the, it was a classroom, and you started talking about org charts. And I kind of peeked, I kind of like, all right, we're going to talk about org charts. I think this is something that might be interesting here. <laughs> and then you went on for another 10 minutes to basically say how you would, if it was up to you, you would burn all the org charts and don't have them and completely move them away. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that part of it, because when you're looking at the size of the operation you have, there has to be some sort of structure, mm -hmm. um, but kind of getting into that conversation, 
um, one of the most compelling things that you said in that that really impacted me was the customer is nowhere on that org chart. No. And that's the most important part. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, why you're so passionate about that, and how you've been able to apply that to Bama. Yes. Well, obviously, I met Dr. Deming in the early 90s, um, and he was a huge impact. Not only my mom and dad as mentors, but Dr. Deming was, was up there. Um, and probably um, after my dad got sick became a bigger influence on me mm. because I really bought into his philosophies and uh, the fact that he was a PhD statistician, he'd worked in Japan, he brought, he was sent over there by us to help as part of the Marshall Plan bring them back to a world power after we destroyed, you know, them in, mm -hmm. in yeah. the war. And and the very first thing he taught me was these, these charts called system flow. Mm -hmm. System, system flow charts. So he used these things, whether he was in a, a, a lecture hall, uh, when I met him, he, was, he had just signed a contract with Ford Motor Company. And so we went to Dearborn, Michigan yeah. to go to his seminars, and he was teaching thousands of people at a time. So the very first day, he would start um, with the system flowchart. And he always said, this is the way I started my lectures with every CEO in Japan, every group we did, every piece of work we did. So a system flow is, is it's a it's a supplier on the on the left side mm -hmm. flowing over to a customer on the right side. Yeah. It talks about it has an arrow going up from the customer about feedback loops. It has the feedback loop from the information you get from the customer coming back into the system. Mm -hmm. The system is the manufacturer, the production of the making of a widget, whatever it is. Yeah. And, and where you, what you learn is that all these things going on outside the system are noise, but also they need to be managed appropriately to affect the system. Right. What he also taught me was that workers who come in and work on a line and punch a clock and work from you know, 6 a.m. to 3 have no ability to impact the system at all unless you get them set up where they can give feedback mm -hmm. to the management group. What's the manager's job? The manager's job is to continuously improve the system of work. And that means all over the place. So when I look at, and I talk to our management teams around here, what we talk about is you all are outside the system. You're not in the system. Right. Because any, what I explain to people is anyone who can get up and walk away from a task and go on a break and not have to be replaced or they can go take a day off to take their kid to school or whatever, mm -hmm. they're part they're not in the system, they're outside of it. Right. And their job is to continuously improve it. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you do that? You get feedback from the team members, you go out to the lines, you set up these things called uh, statistical process control charts, mm -hmm. and you monitor and you measure things. So you measure equipment uptime, you measure weight control, you measure um, uh, you know, output and throughput and, and efficiencies and things like that. But the theory behind the system is that what we do in management is we often violate the system because we put arbitrary numbers and, and goals on things mm -hmm. without having a full understanding of what the system is capable of. Right. So uh, for years, I used to count the amount of products coming out of the, uh, off of the lines yeah. And compare and contrast, and then we would go like give bonuses to the lines that had the best results, and give, you know, talks talks to the lines that didn't do so well. <laughs> so this is how we're gauged. This is how we're geared yeah. as wired as humans, right? Uh -huh. This is what we think our job is in management. What I've done is take that book out and with Dr. Deming's help and throw that away and say, no, your job is to continuously improve the system with the help of the people that work out there. Yeah. So we're constantly looking at the data. We're constantly talking to the folks about how we can improve it. We're talking about putting improvement projects together that go out and improve things. Rather than blaming, rather than putting quotas and numbers and, and, and bonuses and you know targets and goals and numerics and dollars and mm -hmm. what we call making people dance for the money, right? Yeah. So dancing for the money is not continuously improving the system. So I'm getting to the org chart, okay? <laughs> so if we take the pay system away from 
how we pay people. Right. And we remove it from the discussion. We go to a market-based pay system, which is what we've done here. Yeah. That means every other discussion we're going to have with you is going to be about how we can help you, how can we do better, how can we help you do better. And yes, if there's an issue there, we need to talk about your performance within that job. Yeah. We're not going to use money against you as a weapon or whatever. We're right. going to pay you fairly and market rate, but then we're going to move over here and say, okay, what happens outside of that money money thing? Yeah. Because Dr. Deming's fear was that when you put, attach money to jobs, that things become fake, false, and a bunch of lies. Yes. So when we talk about organizational charts and structures, you look at that, and I've, I've had so many long conversations with Dr. Deming about these things. And I'm like, okay, Dr. Deming, how do we get rid of these things? Yeah. Because what it is, is he used to call it a control of power rather than a control chart or a, uh -huh. a, a flow chart. He called it a control of power. Mm -hmm. So what it says is the person at the top of the box is the power and everyone underneath that that rolls up to them is going to become pawns in this person's power structure, power yeah. game, whatever. So the benefit to the organization goes away. You sub-optimize the organization because now all of these top box guys are on bonuses and they're working for money. Mm -hmm. So they may even be working at cross-purposes. So if you go in and look at your, let's say you've got a team of six people and you go in and look at all their goals. So you look at the supply chain guys' goals and you look at the operations guys' goals. You'll see on there, like the purchasing guy's job is to reduce costs, right? Uh -huh. Through managing vendors. Mm -hmm. When you manage vendors and you're looking for the lowest cost vendor, what do you have to do to change a vendor? Well, in our company, you got to go work with the ops guys, right? Yeah. And you got to like say, okay, well, I want to bring this vendor in. I want to run a trial. Well, if the ops guy is on a throughput rate and a efficiency and a downtime and scrap, and his goals are about that. And he's dancing, trying to get that thing. And yes, and so the supply chain guy's dancing yeah. too. So now we've all, we're all dancing, right? Mm -hmm. And now what's going to happen is we're all going to get our knives out. And we're going to start stabbing each other. Now the benefit to the organization is gone, right? You guys should have a no-knife policy. <laughs> no-knife policy. Let's yeah. uh, do it quietly, okay? Yeah. Put some propanol in somebody's coffee in the morning or something, you know? <laughs> make, make them trip up, yeah. you know? Like, trip them up. Mm -hmm. So the, the, organiz the toxicity that goes on in an organization yeah. with that, because we all think that that's a control. Like, we all feel like we've got control of our organizations because we have these org charts because everybody has a goal and objective, and we all think, oh, isn't this lovely? Yeah. Well, what we don't realize is all that it's going down through the organization, creating all this toxicity. And there's no customer anywhere, and there's no supplier anywhere. Right. And there's no system for monitoring that. The customer, the supplier, the everything is the guy up on the top whose name is on the top. And he could be on a power trip, mm -hmm. you know, and you just have no idea, or he could be the greatest boss in the world but he's still going to have a competition with the guy or gal who's next to him and everybody's trying to look good and get the money so it all starts breaking down so what we do is we take the money away from the table we we put everybody down in a system so my supply chain guy has his entire system on a system view map my entire management team is on a system view map so all functions are represented mm -hmm. on the same system view all their team members that their and their roles are represented and and sometimes these things get pretty big and gnarly so yeah. we separate <laughs> them and we have layers now of of subsystems yeah. and subcharts but what you'll see is you'll see a harmonious group of people now working together just that one change yeah. just that one thing moving away from that org chart you'll see a systematic flow of work and everyone will instantaneously calm down because we're not there's no goals and objectives attached to any of these yeah. things there's jobs roles and outputs mm -hmm. and the output is always highest quality possible for the customer lowest possible cost mm -hmm. team member engagement um, the the financial aspect how's it going you know Use your SPC charts. Tell us, tell us what's going on. Mm -hmm. and, and the four components of what comes out of a system are your KPIs, your key process indicators. Yeah. 
then you use all of that data for input, for you know gathering your input. And in our management meetings, I would say, are basically research and talking about the key process indicators and the metrics. And then we feed all that back into through the management team. And when we make a plan, everyone is part of executing the plan all together. Yeah. So it's not a one-off type deal. I what I would um, say to you, and you could. You know, you could pull any of our management team together and say, you know, how different is this from working in a normal? And they're all going to say it's incredibly different. Yeah. Most of my top guys have been here 10 years or more, and they but they came out of, like, Fortune 100 companies. So they came from Pillsbury. They came from General oh. Mills. They came from, uh, you know, um, other of my, maybe I hired somebody from a McDonald's. It was an ex-McDonald's person or they're homegrown, what we call homegrown. They started here and they, they, you know, have stayed here. So when we talk, we talk about the systems. We don't talk about your individual goal or your, you know, if you have a responsibility to the system, you're expected to meet that. But there's also going to be a weekly get together and everyone's going to know, like, what are the top five KPIs for the week? And then how is that generating and affecting our top KPIs for the month? And then, you know, it's a continuous bubbling up of conversation about what was working and what didn't work. And, and so we're continuously improving the system. Yeah. So it's, it's when you put that workflow redesign, when you put that system view chart in there and you put the roles on there and you take the pay discussion away, you instantaneously, continuously improve the company. Yeah instead of fighting and arguing about what who's right and who's wrong. And allow it to scale and grow yes. and set an example. The one thing that I, I I think I saw this on the, the slide when you had it up there, but you even had your culture integrated into it too, yes. which I think People. is really cool. You're actually looking at not just, you know, here's in charge and whoever else, but here's where culture fits into this process. Yes. And I think a lot of times people struggle with how to figure out how do we get our corporate culture you know, to the factory level, to, yes. that, to that very last person on what would be a traditional org chart. And this process, it's infused. It's ingrained, it's, it's ingrained because beginning. one of the outputs, one of our KPI metrics is customers are wildly important. Yeah. So we have lots of metrics around them. People are wildly important. So we are constantly monitoring our culture. And all of us in the system, not just people systems or not just me, yeah. own the culture of the company. We're all woven into the fabric of the system and the output of the system, which is people are wildly important. So it, it I can sleep better at night yeah. knowing that people aren't looking at me to say, well, she's, she's the culture guru yeah. or only so-and-so over there in the corner owns. I mean, how many companies do you know where they don't call people systems in until there's a problem, or they call it human resources, which yeah. is even worse. <laughs> and they call them in when it's problematic and they want to fire the person. So how integrated is human resources into corporate America? It's not. It's a separate it's department. It's not. Yeah. It's separate, and we use it as a weapon. Mm-hmm. And it's not. they're not considered partners with, and every human resource professional I've ever talked to, any group I've ever spoken to where this is the case, I see human resource professionals crying, like when I start talking, yeah. because they hate being the watch. They hate being the, the the you know the dogs of coming in and always being the ones that have to put the hammer down mm-hmm. um, and enforce the rules and all that kind of stuff. They don't want to be that. They want to be part of the strategic fabric of the company and help grow the company and help have the resources and the team members trained. I mean. Without team members, without the proper training, without us coming together and agreeing that the culture is really important, yeah. they they play no role. Yeah. They're staffing and they're like, you know, just bringing in the people that the managers call and say, bring in some more people. Yeah. And they're just outside of everything. Yeah. So here, what we try to do is incorporate that. So our four pillars are customers, people, continuous improvement, yeah. and smart fund growth. So we incorporate those things into everything. Every single one of our management team is very clear on what they're trying to do every day. Uh And while things within those KPIs might change because we have different customer projects or we have different, 
um, continuous improvement projects going on or we have a lot of training going on for black belts or green belts or whatever, mm -hmm. we're, those things might change, but the four basic tenants don't change. Yeah. And then over on the supply side of the system, what supplies the information in is all of our core values, our mission statement, all of that is over here as an input to, you know, what customers want from us, what the suppliers need from I mean, all of that is put into and incorporated into the system. Wow. So that's where it all comes in is from the left-hand side. My brain hurts right now. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> but I, I'm loving it. This is, uh, uh, I want to be respectful of your time because we're getting kind of, uh, we're kind of winding down here with, yes. uh, with what we need to do. But, man, thank you so much for thank uh, you. sharing with our audience, taking the time to meet with me. And, and uh, there's so much more, I think, here. So I encourage people to, to kind of dive in and check out the Deming Institute and some of the things that Paul is talking mm -hmm. about there. Uh, I want to kind of close it down and uh, give you an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. We always give our guests an opportunity to um, to kind of share what your some of the clues that you've learned along your entrepreneurial journey or some of the leadership traits that you've learned along the ways. But this is kind of an opportunity to speak to that younger version of yourself and, and kind of say, you know, here's here's something that I, if I could speak to you now, it would be this. So what would you say your message is to young business leaders? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think believing in yourself and I think, um, you know, having a mission, uh, knowing what your mission is, um, whether it's your personal mission. Um, I encourage, I teach a class on personal missions here, and I encourage every single Bama team member to write down what their purpose here is on earth and what their passions are and live their live their passion every day. Because mm -hmm. it won't work otherwise. If you're being forced to do something, not a good not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well Paula, thank you for being a part of this. Listeners remember choose to connect, seek development and be inspired. We'll catch you on the next podcast. Young businessmen, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about the Young Businessmen of Tulsa, check out our website at www.ybtok.com or email us at ybtoklahoma at gmail.com. If you live in the Tulsa area and would like to hear one of our great speakers live at our monthly luncheon, we meet on the second Monday of every month from 12 to 1 p.m. Like us on Facebook for details about locations and upcoming speakers. Lastly, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes and share us with your friends. Thank you for tuning in to the Young Businessmen of Tulsa podcast, where we connect, develop, and inspire young businessmen to find and pursue their purpose.